You shouldn't be here. I can only imagine your pain and confusion. But know this. What's happening to you is part of something bigger. Something older than anything known. You've seen horrible things. An army of nightmare creatures. But they are nothing compared to what came before. What lies below. It's our task to placate the ancient ones. As it's yours to be offered up to them. Forgive us. And let us get it over with. Welcome to Now Playing's Listener Choice Review of Cabin in the Woods. This we offer in humility and fear for the blessed peace of your eternal slumber as it ever was. As it ever was. Hosted by Stuart. The scholar. Arnie. The fool. And Marjorie. The virgin. Me. Virgin. We work with what we have. This podcast will contain detailed spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. The lambs have passed through the gate. They are come to the killing floor. Their blind eyes see nothing of the horrors to come. Their ears are stopped. They are the gods' fools. Well, that's how it works. Cleanse them. Cleanse the world of their ignorance and sin. Because Whedonites crawled out of the woodwork like cockroaches to vote for it, today we're discussing The Cabin in the Woods, starring Kristen Connolly, Chris Hemsworth, Anna Hutchinson, Fran Kranz, Jesse Williams, and Bradley Whitford, directed by Drew Goddard. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, who thinks this podcast would be so much cooler with a merman. Steward in the Woods. And I'm Marjorie, possibly the lone survivor. But not the virgin. No, I'm not. <laughs> Absolutely not. But I'm not going to make out with those taxidermy wolf. I don't know. What would I be? I'd like to think I'm the brain. Sometimes I'm the brain, but sometimes I'm the fool. Who, I, who I think the you're brain? the fool, and I think I'm the fool, the too. The athlete? <laughs> All right, this is not going to work. We need more friends. <laughs> I'm the virgin? No. I think the old ones are going to win this one. I don't think we're going to get sacrificed here. Well, why don't we offer up a sacrifice to the listeners who came out in mass and voted because this was your choice for us to watch and review Cabin in the Woods. We had a vote. The choices were Zombieland, Trick or Treat, or Cabin in the Woods. Zombieland, poor Zombieland, it never stood a chance, did it? Sadly, I kind of wanted it to win just because it's the one I haven't seen and it would give me an excuse to go watch it. Of course, I could watch it at any time. I could watch it tonight if I wanted, but I almost feel like I'm saving it for a time when we will one day review it. I thought it could happen because we are doing zombies right now. Obviously, Romero is a big part of our lives and all the official Living Dead movies. I thought it could slip in there, but you know what? This is kind of Joss Whedon's year, and I had a feeling that his involvement with Cabin in the Woods would give this one the edge. Trick or Treat was winning for quite some time, and then Cabin in the Woods got like 500 votes in 12 hours, so... <laughs> Amazing! <laughs> yeah, it's incredible! Some kind of black magic. So here we are discussing Cabin in the Woods, because we wanted to bring some horror to Halloween. Of course, as Stuart already implied over on our donation series we are doing our fall donation drive 
We have all the Living Dead reviews there. We're doing the George Romero six official Night of the Living Dead films for silver level donors. And for gold level donors, we're also doing the three official remakes. Tom Savini's 1990 Night of the Living Dead, Zack Snyder's 2004 Dawn of the Dead, and Steve Miner's 2008 Day of the Dead. (laughs) Yeah, that illustrious one. Can't wait to get to that one. Everyone wants to hear Day of the Dead, the (laughs) 2008 Mina Suvari film. (laughs) Yeah, that's how we're spending Halloween. So you can find out all the details on how to listen to that by heading to our homepage. But because we did want to get some horror out on the primary now playing feed, we have this bonus review of Cabin in the Woods, which came out earlier this year, and we did see it in theaters, both Marjorie and I. Because I'd heard good things, but let me just be completely honest here. I just couldn't wait for the Avengers anymore, and I had to see a movie from Joss Whedon that starred Thor. (laughs) Really? Really? This was your amuse-bouche before you dined on a five-course Avengers meal? Yes, yes it was. It helped that I had heard good things. I'm a big fan of Evil Dead a cabin-in-the-woods horror film. We're sucker for horror films. We went and saw Creature, and no one else did. We were the only ones in the theater when we saw it. We will go see horror movies later at night, more fun. I love horror movies in Arnie, so we'll just go see any horror movie just about. Unless it's PG-13, because then it's going to suck. Well, you bring up something interesting. Is Cabin in the Woods a horror movie? You know, I was tricked into seeing this movie. I had heard of the good buzz as well. I am a horror fan. I'm not a Joss Whedon or Avengers fan. That had no play to it at all. It was that I had heard this was a game-changing horror movie, that they do things and moves in this that hadn't been done before, and what were they going to be, and how are they going to take a very familiar, some might say played out genre and make it fresh again how are they going to take a slasher movie scenario in the woods and make it cool again so i was intrigued by the rubik's cube poster that they had out the buzz the promises from fanboys that this was going to be revolutionary that's what got me to the theater but is it really game changing or is it more of a parody movie it's exactly set up like the standard horror movie you have the same characters which was its point but i think it's more of a haramity Kind of a parody of it. I made a new word up. I like it, Marjorie. We are definitely coining that. Awesome. Yeah, get that like on the uh, trademark or something. Make some money off that. Horomedy. I think this is not the only horomedy that they've been trying lately. But yes, that is the absolute perfect word for this. With Amity being the heavy emphasis when you say it. A horror movie in trappings, comedy in actuality. Well, before we get too much into it, I want to reiterate the opening credit spoiler warning, because I did see this in theaters knowing nothing. Heard good buzz, but nobody said why it was good buzz. I thought it might just be a throwback, but went in knowing nothing, and I think my experience was 20 times the richer for that. So if you haven't seen this movie, I implore you. Head to our donation page, donate for now playing's Romero series to get some horror there, but push stop now, and then come back after you've seen it. And I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say that there's no way that you could spoil this movie because so much of it depends on humor, and that the twist that they're going to offer is not essential to the enjoyment of what this movie has to offer. We come at it from two different standpoints, I think, Arnie. To me, I think that you can go ahead and go in and be spoiled and not have anything different. I think the ad campaign spoiled this movie, quite honestly, a lot about what we know that's happening here, that this is a 
manipulation game, that, that there are people that are making sure that these five kids fall into the standard beats of a horror movie. Even the poster implies that, but definitely the trailers, you know going into it that there is a postmodern game going on here. And obviously, I always think it's better to have seen the movie when you hear our reviews, but I disagree. I think that we're not going to be able to spoil everything that's in this movie because it's so filled with jokes. And I think enough of it is given away and hinted at. The foreshadowing kind of just reaches out and slaps you in the face in this movie that... You knew something was up by certain scenes anyway. It's not like the crying game. All right, Arnie, go ahead and spoil it. Give them the plot. A group of five college students are going to decompress at a cabin in the woods, but start not acting like themselves. Jules, normally smart, starts acting whorish and dumb. Kurt, a sociology major on a full academic scholarship, starts acting like a dumb jock. And only stoner Marty realizes something is going on. And what's going on is these five kids are a ritual sacrifice to appease the ancient ones. In horror movie fashion, these five must first choose their own method of death, which they do by reading Latin from a found diary of pain-worshipping hicks, and then must be killed until only, quote, the virgin, unquote, this being Dana, is left alive. This is being attended to by a secret organization who use pheromone gas, laced marijuana, pyrotechnics, and more to influence the situation in a Truman Show kind of way. Across the globe, similar groups are working to have a similar sacrifice. But every group has failed, the people have lived, and it's up to zombies the Buckners to kill these five, or the Ancient Ones will rise and every human on Earth will suffer an agonizing death. And the Buckners seem to do their job. They kill Jules, Kurt, and Holden, and it seems only Dana lives, and it doesn't really matter for the sacrifice if Dana, the virgin, lives or dies so long as she dies last. But just when she's about to be killed by a Buckner, she's saved by Marty. Despite being stabbed in the back and dragged away, he managed to survive throwing a wrench in the entire sacrifice. Marty hadn't smoked the laced weed that they'd planted. He had a secret stash the puppet masters didn't lace, and so he was able to see through their illusions and even find an elevator to their underground complex where they store monsters of every variety, from ghosts to clowns to cenobites to mermen to use in future sacrifices. The group's paramilitary troops endeavor to kill Marty and save the Earth, so Marty and Dana release all the monsters, and chaotic carnage engulfs the station, killing all the puppet masters. Finally, the unseen director, played by Sigourney Weaver, comes down to talk to Dana and Marty, and explain that if Marty doesn't die by sunrise, Earth is doomed. Dana almost shoots Marty to save humanity, but she's bitten by a werewolf, and the director is killed by a Buckner zombie. Marty and Dana reason that if the survival of humanity means their friends had to suffer and die, perhaps it's time for humanity's reign to end and see if the next group can do better. Marty lights up a joint and they hold hands as the ground shakes and the 40-story tall molten hand of the Ancient One rises up to destroy all of Earth as credits roll. And with these opening credits, Stuart, you say that you don't think that this movie is necessarily bad spoiled. I want to just put out there that when I saw this in theaters, knowing almost nothing, I had a great experience following through the twists and turns as they revealed the sacrifice. But this time, watching it for the second time, knowing it, I also picked up a hell of a lot more. When I'm in the theater seeing this, and in the opening credits, you see all of these old drawings painted in blood and whatnot. It just looks standard horror. People are dying. There's blood. But now I realize what we're seeing is ancient sacrifices through the ages showing the evolution of human sacrifice 
which is to say we've been appeasing the Ancient Ones for as long as humanity's been around. I just want to say, I don't think that this movie is nearly as complicated as it seems to want to make it out. Like, there's this incredible conspiracy that's going to blow your mind. I really think it's a one-joke premise. I think it's a good joke. They tell the joke really well. But there's only one joke here, and that's you think you're here for a standard Cabin in the Woods slasher film, but in fact, it is the workaday people behind the scenes making it happen that is the backbone and the humor and provides all of the end jokes. It's the end jokes that feed this movie. I don't feel like learning that we sacrifice people to appease gods that live underground is anything new, quite frankly. I mean, we've seen Angry God movies even recently with Prometheus. I mean, I think all of that stems back to H.P. Lovecraft. And I'm a Lovecraft fan. I keep hoping that one day they're going to make a legitimate Lovecraft movie and be able to tell this story without all of the flourishes that get added here. But I'm seeing this movie entirely as a comedy. I don't think that the reveals are incredible. I think that going into this movie, I knew what they were saying, which is that this is postmodern horror. This is self-reflexive. We are going to look at the genre and deconstruct it and see what's left of it. And we're going to do so in a humorous way with maybe a few little jumps. But I don't think that this is a horror movie. It's kind of a horror movie in that it kind of takes your standard formulatic horror movie and it's kind of making fun of it in a loving way. But I don't think it focuses on the horror more. It's more focused on the wink wink with the audience as everything's unfolding. I don't know that it's loving. I will question it as we go in. I think that in some ways, this is taking the genre, wadding it up into a ball and throwing it into the trash and saying there's nothing else more to do here. But I will agree with this much. The fun of this movie at first, in the first half hour, is seeing them introduce all of the stock standard horror movie stuff. When we get all of these characters here, we have it literally pointed out to us later, but it is like an eye-rolling, like, oh, of course, there's a jock, there's a virgin, there's a slut, there's a stoner. I mean, these people feel very, very familiar. What they're doing, sex and drinking at a cabin, feels very familiar. So whenever they step out of that and provide a shade that's different, that is always going to bring a smile to my face. The fact that they are smarter than the genre in, in this first half hour is the joy of it. Well, what's funny is having recently watched the new Friday the 13th movie that came out a few years ago and looking at this, it's the exact same character setup. <laughs> exactly the same. <laughs> and look at how much we hated that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you got your stoner. Actually, I think you had two stoner guys there, I think. But then you have your couple, then you have the kind of couple, and there's supposed to be that sexual tension that you don't really feel. And of course, the first murder victim having sex gets killed. Yeah, the one that I stumble over and looking at all of this is that I don't quite get is the brain here. And I know that there's supposed to be shades of different things, but I didn't think that Kurt's friend Holden necessarily was any smarter than Kurt or Jules. Why he gets labeled the scholar, I don't quite understand. If they were more honest with themselves, and I'm sure they didn't want to go here, the truth of a horror movie formula is there's always a minority. And he sort of plays into that. But I know that they don't want to go there. They want to make it non racially charged, but that's truth to the horror movie formula that they don't play into. 
And the fact is, at the end, Sigourney Weaver does say we work with what we have. It's not like Dana was really a virgin either. No, they tell us right at the beginning. I mean, I picked up on that with her first conversation with Jules is she's had this affair with the teacher who dumped her and what she's going to do. So the fact that they're casting her in this virgin role, I'm bumping up against in the first part because I'm like, well, we know that she had this affair. So how are they going to label that? Well, yes, that's the joke. People are more complicated than the way that these puppeteers want to make them. And they're doing all of this manipulation and dumbing them down for the entertainment and for the ritual. But the truth of the matter is, and the reason that we like it is, these people are more complicated and varied than you think. I mean, Kurt is a dumb jock, but at the same time, he's a sociology major and he knows complicated textbooks. And I think that that's the fun of it. I don't think they play him as stupid as they should have. Because every once in a while you get a little hint of his accent, too. Which just instantly made him sound smarter than he probably really is. But they didn't spend a lot of time in character development with these people. Because I don't think necessarily that he was stupid. They didn't portray him as like a dumb jock. You're just supposed to assume it and go with it. I think someone should have been more average inclinations than the rest of them. Jules, Kurt, and Holden are all college educated. There is usually some variance. I guess that comes from the fool. I guess that's what we're supposed to get when we get Marty, but we just blame everything on the pot with him. My litmus test at this beginning is, if this movie were really what it was presenting, and it really was just about these people at a cabin being attacked by hillbillies, would you enjoy it? Do you think you would enjoy this movie if they didn't have all of the behind the scenes going on? Absolutely. But let's keep in mind, I do not consider myself a Whedonite. I do not worship at the altar of Joss. I have gone and seen him speak at conventions. I did enjoy Buffy the Vampire Slayer quite a bit for its first five seasons. So far, everything you're saying isn't making me think that you're not <laughs> yeah. a Whedonite. Yeah. I watched all of Dollhouse. It wasn't great, but I kept watching it. And <laughs> Yeah, that was his next statement, actually. I... <laughs> Go on. Defend how you're not a Whedonite. We all know you very well at this point, Arnie. I think you're more of a Whedonite than you're willing to admit, but you're not full on. No, I couldn't sit through Dollhouse. I couldn't. The guy who's playing Marty on here, apparently he's from Dollhouse, and I watched the first episode and didn't like it. Serenity, I pissed off a lot of Now Playing listeners when I did a Serenity marathon trying to see what people like about it and can't. I thought you liked that one. You liked the Alien Resurrection better then. Yes, Alien Resurrection was better. I thought you did like Serenity and Fireflies. I thought you watched them when I was gone one day and you're like, yeah, they're not bad. I don't think you'd like it. They're not bad, but they weren't good. Oh. What I can say is I like Whedon as a writer. I like his sense of humor. I like his irony. All this stuff you're talking about, Stuart, I was feeling very much at home as a former Buffy fan. I mean, that's what Buffy was, was taking conventions of the horror genre and then throwing in a ditzy blonde who kicked a lot of ass and said a lot of jokes. I thought it was more 90210 with vampires. No, but you didn't really watch it either. I watched some of it with you. But you didn't pay attention. No. <laughs> I didn't watch Buffy either, and that was always my impression, Marjorie, was that it was a teen soap opera with some horror elements. I wasn't interested, and I've had many people that I respect since then sort of come to me and say, you know, there was a lot more going on. What you're saying, Arnie, that there was some cleverness there that I wasn't recognizing. But yeah, I'm not drawn to Whedon's aesthetic. It doesn't compel me that I have to now go watch seven seasons of Buffy because I've seen this movie. I appreciate the way that he can turn a phrase. I agree 
I like these people in the early setups when they're doing a parody of the old 80s drug commercial. I learned it from you, Dad, kind of stuff. I'm like, <laughs> that's funny. I do like these people. If this were played straight, I probably would like them. I probably could go with this movie, presuming the scares were good. I'd probably say, yeah, I'm down with this crew in a cabin in the woods for a horror movie. They work for me. That said, knowing that Joss Whedon is one of the writers here, I have to say, going in, I thought this would be a standard horror film. I had no idea what was going on with the office space type jokes with Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins, but I thought it was going to be straight up. I thought it was going to be the Buckners versus the kids. I kind of thought that the office people were actually just making a movie and that the whole parody would be that this is the next horror film that comes out and they were controlling it a la Truman Show. That is exactly what I thought. I knew they were controlling it. I thought the end product would be the movie they were delivering to us, that they were actually not directors, but reality TV filmmakers that were manipulating the death of kids for our entertainment. And they even play with that when Marty says, I'm on reality TV. Mm -hmm. I thought that's what was going on. But I knew it wouldn't just be straight up because Joss always has a strong female. There would have been something to twist it. I never expected this twist, but there would have been something to make it different. But yeah, I like these kids. And especially on a second viewing, though, I've got to say, it's Marty, right? He's the star. He's the funny one. He's the one who steals every scene. He's the tolerable one, and I hate to say that, but I think Marty got all the good lines. He got all the fun. Everyone else is just kind of flat and boring. Dana, yeah, she's the survivor and everything. I don't think she is particularly tough. She showed one instance where, in a survival mode, it kicked in and she killed one of the zombies, but... Throughout the rest of the time she did that, Marty took care of her. He did everything. But this is kind of the point. Yes. Is that she's supposed to be the last girl. If you go back, you mentioned the remake of Friday the 13th. My mind goes back to the original Friday the 13th and that group and how, yeah, you've got your various colorful characters and your various archetypes and stereotypes, but the main person is always one standing in the background and isn't the most interesting character. The final girl is quite often not that interesting. I point you to the I Am Nancy documentary and how many (laughs) people have Nancy tattoos. Yes. Yeah, I do think that these people aren't designed to be any more complicated than standard issue horror movie kids. They're likable, but they're not complicated. They're not interesting. You're okay with the idea of them being killed, and I think that that's what Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon are playing with here, is that they didn't want to make better characters than what you would normally get. They wanted to use those characters and manipulate them for humor. And the fact that you end up liking Marty is, I think, a testament to the fact that this ends up being really a comedy. You mentioned we've seen Creature and so many other horror films. We try to consume all of them as they come out. And one scene that absolutely let me know that this movie knew what was going on is what they call the Harbringer scene, where Mordecai has the gas station, and we have to give golden headphones to the Harbringer. Really? I'm sure I've seen him before, but I couldn't tell you where or how. He looks like anything from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This actor is Tim DeZarn, who was Mary Jane's father in Spider-Man. Oh, the abusive one. Okay. Uh-huh. He didn't get much screen time. I feel okay missing him. All right. And Leatherface's boss and first kill in Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning. Oh. Unmemorable. <laughs> I really think these golden headphones are starting to be a little too common here, folks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, all that glitters is not gold here. Um, okay, he's really perfectly cast here, and I agree. This is a scene that is perfectly designed to parody the slasher movie convention. We have seen it since reviewing Friday the 13th, the old crazy man that warns the kids, don't go there. He'll never come back again. Yes. It's got a death curse. (laughs) He wasn't British, but yes, (laughs) that is something we see time and time again. They had to acknowledge it. If they're going to satirize this genre, they had to put it in here. I think it's effectively used. It's interesting when you realize that he is there to give these kids a choice. Most of the time, these kids are being pushed into a scenario. They don't have a lot of free will here. They're being set up to be killed. They're lambs going into a slaughterhouse. But at this point, the lambs are not on a leash. There's nothing to keep them from turning around and going back home or checking into a hotel and partying somewhere else. If you were going down a dead-end road with GPS not saying where you were, and this was the nearest human to where you were going to be, maybe you wouldn't make the choice to stay here. I don't know. It's iffy. It's hard for me to blame them. I think I'd probably still keep going, too. It isn't such a harbinger that you would definitely say, let's cancel the weekend. But I like the fact that that's why he exists. He is there to let them know that death is coming, and it's their first smell of it. They can make the choice to stay or go. I think his little gas station needed more frightening things in it, more to set off, like, in that movie, Cabin Fever, where that kid just sits there and goes, pancakes, pancakes, pancakes! Just, like, weird stuff like that. You just had an g- old guy that spits tobacco on the ground and called Jules a whore. You said tobacco. <laughs> I did say tobacco. <laughs> I love on that. On purpose. Thank you. You made my day. Well, I like to think he's an Appalachian-American. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that's probably where this region is. I I have no idea where in the world it is. We know it's America. But it's actually not. Oh, really? Canada, of course? Canada. Yeah. Well... But for the movie setting, this is America's entry in the competition for who's going to sacrifice this year's crop of kids. Having been in that situation, Arnie and I one time met a harbinger (laughs) in Georgia at a stop to get some roadside peaches and heard moaning and chains rattling and Arnie (laughs) flipped out and we had to leave. Oh, okay. So sometimes it works. Who knows? It does sometimes. (laughs) You might have been the peach pickers next kill. (laughs) I could have been a sofa by now. Wow. (laughs) You know. Well, I'm so glad you're not. Yeah. (laughs) So some people choose to go forward. Some people would choose not to go forward. It's a funny scene. And I I just want to mention, I think it's very odd that if these are supposed to be college students today, and we know everybody lives on their smartphones, iPads, computers. Why the hell would they go someplace and be off the grid? You can smoke weed in your dorm room and in their luxury apartment that they had. Why would they go somewhere off the grid? I think it is a new fantasy. I mean, we have been working so hard to get to this moment where everything is hardwired and we can have anything we want instantaneously. I can remember growing up thinking, wouldn't it be incredible as I listened to the radio if I just had something that played the music that I wanted exactly when I wanted? You know, this has been something I've watched evolve in my lifetime. We've reached this pinnacle now. I do think there is a retro fantasy about now, like, totally getting unwired, going someplace where there's no internet, no connection, no cell phone. I definitely can recognize that as having some kind of appeal in this era of oversharing and too much information and instant gratification. Yeah, I think it's what hipsters do now. (laughs) I'm down for the premise, though. It's a horror film. I'm not questioning why these kids are going out there. They're going out there to die, and that's why I'm in the audience. 
Yeah. Arnie, you said that you did not know what was going on even at this point, even when Mordecai is on a speakerphone call with the guys in the lab and they're making a direct connection. We know that these people are conspiring to get these kids. You must have an inkling at this point. Certainly when the bird flies into the invisible force field, you must understand the machinations that are in play to keeping these kids here and to torture and kill them. Yes, I'm getting that. And I'm getting it as the movie gives it, though. Because we start off with those two office workers, and I'm like, who the hell are these? It's Bradley Whitford. I loved him on West Wing and... Happy Gilmore. Yeah. So I thought maybe they were going to be the first ones dead, you know, the pre-credits kill. I had no clue what was going on with them. When I see that they are watching everything and the Harbringer, I mean, first of all, they are the ones adding life to this first half because otherwise we're in such a rote horror film that while Marty's lines are clever, I can't say that my interest would be piqued. I'd be waiting for them, biding my time to get to the cabin, the first half hour to pass, and then the deaths to start. But what's really getting my interest is these people in the building and trying to figure out what are they doing? What is it that their goal is? Why are they doing this? And how are they doing this? You mentioned the bird. That's the one conceit that goes a little too far for me. I mean, then we're in sci-fi that they have an electric force field. But Yeah, when I first saw this movie after I emerged from the theater, I made the argument to myself that I think that this is the movie. The movie is these two guys. You could cut this movie down to 20 minutes and it could just be about their workaday life trying to engineer a horror movie and how dull and mundane it is and how they can be killing children and at the same time talk about baby-proofing their house. To me, it played like something on Funny or Die. And it's everything, these guys and their repartee and what they're doing and betting on what monster's going to come. I felt like it might work better if we didn't have to follow these kids that we know are going to die that aren't important to the story that they're telling, the twist on the story that they're telling, that it really is about these two. And these are the stars of this film. It's all about Citizen and Hadley. And they are incredibly amusing. I think this is where all my intrigue is. And I like what Amy Acker, an Angel alum, adds to it where she's not quite as in it as those guys. And then we have the new military guy, Truman, who really is the outsider and thinks that what they're doing is just so horrible. There's great dynamics here. And Hadley and Stitterson are incredibly fun to watch even on a second viewing. But on a first viewing, when you're not sure what it is they're up to, it's Acker and... Truman, who lend the intrigue and really hooked me in because I wanted to know what they knew. And I think you just brought in a really good point that this is not a watch once and walk away. You definitely need to go back because once you know how it ends, you will go back and see all the different little clues and tells that you probably just chalked up to nothing. You didn't, you didn't even know. Some of them we didn't even notice the first time until the second viewing. I mean, there's the one scene very early on where Marty is rolling a joint and said, society needs to crumble. We're just all too chicken shit to let it. You'll come to see things my way. Right there, he's setting up how the film's going to end in a very clever way. These guys are good, smart writers. That's why I like most of the stuff they write. I agree. I did not see that one until the second time. You're right. There are plenty of Easter eggs. There are plenty of reasons to return to the movie. But I'm surprised you guys didn't pick up that Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins are making a horror movie. I thought that was evident. I thought that was evident in the trailers. I thought they kind of telegraphed that. What I didn't know is why. 
I couldn't guess why they would be doing this, but I knew that they were engineering. I mean, right from the get-go, when the kids get in the RV van, there's somebody up top radio signaling to them. We know that there's a whole conspiracy working to make sure that these kids do what is expected in a horror movie. And the only mystery to me is to what end could this be all for? Well, I got it. Like I said, I thought they were making a horror movie. I thought this was Michael Bay sitting in a room making the remake of Friday the 13th. The Cabin in the Woods movie would end with it being released or something like that and not realizing we're watching a snuff film. But I wasn't sure. I wanted to see where it was going. I was intrigued because there's still more to it. There's other things hinted at. There's the people upstairs. There's the people downstairs. There's the Japanese, which I love with the (laughs) J-horror. That was inspired. That they had, like, the ring girl in there. So I thought they were making a horror movie, but I didn't know. And then when the kids start dying and you start seeing these mysterious symbols fill up with blood and they start saying a prayer... I wasn't convinced. So I got that they were manipulating everything. I'm, I mean, I'm not the fool. I just didn't get why, how, or to what end. And that's what I was on the edge of my seat for. Yeah, why would someone build this kind of cabin that looks like it came straight out of Evil Dead? This modest-looking cabin that actually has two-way mirrors and trap doors and pheromone-releasing gas. Why would you have a force field around all of this? Why would you spend all this money just to make a horror movie? It didn't add up. It's Mordecai. It's the harbinger that really is the first one to speak the words ancient ones. We think he's crazy, so you may not hang on to that. But that's really getting as to what audience this really is all for. And I heard the ancient ones, but I never knew exactly how crazy Mordecai was. I mean, the guys in the office are laughing at him in that great speakerphone scene. That was one of the funniest things of the whole movie. I giggling over that. It's hilarious. But I thought maybe he was thinking he was in service to the Ancient Ones, but they were like, yeah, Ancient Ones, whatever. Okay, you know, maybe it's just all about reading Lovecraft. It's like, once you say Old Ones, Ancient Ones, I'm like, aha, I know what this is. This is the foundation for what they did for Alien, for Thing. It's old gods that live underneath the Earth and are waiting to reemerge. It was a role-playing game. I played Call of Cthulhu. I am that dorky. So I, I, I do feel like slowly but surely I was getting to that, but that was the mystery for me. It was the only mystery for me was the why. And we get the big why when they are playing Truth or Dare and the trap door opens and they have to go choose. I mean, this is the one other point that I can tell that the kids have free will. They're allowed to make the decision at the Harbinger whether they'll go to the cabin or not, and they're allowed to pick the means of their death. And otherwise, they're being shuttled around this plot by the puppeteers. And what's funny about this scene down there is I know something is going to trigger an evil. I've seen Evil Dead. I've seen all these movies where they go down there and find something. And what's great for me is I'm wondering what it's going to be. And yeah, they mentioned a merman and they have the betting thing. So I get that each one now represents something. But I was just so having fun. It was hitting me where I live in humor to see all these different things. The locket, the ballerina music box, the diary, the puzzle box, all of it. This is the movie for me. When I think about the enjoyment of the movie, it's all of this minutia. It's this detail. It's looking at the fact that they have a whiteboard where all these people are placing their bets about what monster is going to come, what monster is going to be summoned. And every single one on that list, I think, makes an appearance. 
I think there's maybe one or two, but for the most part, the fun of this movie is seeing all of the little variances. Yes. Does Kevin make an appearance? Because Kevin is on there. I know. I can only presume we just didn't know him by name, but he must be there. I also don't think that the angry molesting tree made it to this one. No. It was probably off to the Evil Dead remake. No, actually, there was an angry molesting tree somewhere in the background because I heard in the commentary they had to talk to the effects guy and say it's an evil molesting tree, not an evil raping tree, and they had to tone down the tree. Okay! (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, if you saw Evil Dead, you knew what that meant. But yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of in-jokes. Kevin, probably somebody they worked with, if they mentioned it, I don't remember who. But yeah, there's so many of them. They have witches, and then they also have sexy witches. (laughs) I like that. I like the fact that they have to specify that they're different. You know, some of this are like sugar plum fairy. I don't know if we saw that one. I can't imagine that working. But, you know, they did make a movie about the tooth fairy. So these things are not off limits here. Everything that they've targeted is a movie that somebody would try to... To make as a straight slasher film. And to just jump ahead a little bit, when all of them come out at the end, it's so great because you see on the list the doctors, and that's one of my favorite little vignettes we see on the screen there is where the surgeons are cutting people up. And I mean, I've seen so many horror movies. There's the Yakuza in the doll mask. I was taken back to that David Boreanaz film Valentine with Hedy Burress. I mean, do you want to be taken back to this? I mean, I agree. In some ways, it's cathartic to purge that maybe from your mind. That's how I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, God, yes, they did that. But I don't know that I want to reminisce. And Dr. Giggles. And then you see the evil clown. And I'm thinking Pennywise and Poltergeist. It's just all so great the way they brought all that in. And they tease it perfectly because you see it on the whiteboard and you're like oh yeah and you see the stuff in the basement and you get it all as a horror fan i think it works so much better right here if you're basically us yes if you're the three of us who've seen all this shit then right here they are giving you your jollies and if you're new i think there's still a lot in this film you'll enjoy you'll enjoy marty's humor and things but this scene might not work as much I think that ultimately the one that they choose serves the story the best because the Buckners are actually the owners of this cabin. They are frontiers people that turn cannibalistic. I think they're kind of like the Donner Party, right? That's how I kind of take it is that they were rural people that got caught in a bad way. And this little girl wrote down in her diary how they had to turn to cannibalism and eat her own arm and became the monsters that are summoned by Dana. But, Stuart, where does the husband bulge fit into the Donner Party? (laughs) I don't know, and I don't want to know. I think this was more of a crazy misinterpreting the Bible religious family, where the father was punishing them. And because she says, you know, mothers screamed and didn't have the faith. And I think it was more of he was doing this for Jesus. Or whatever. Well, whatever, yeah. For a fundamentalist religion, we presume Christianity, but it could have been anything. It could have been their own cult. Yes, exactly. But I don't think necessarily it was a Donner Party situation. I think it was more of a religious thing, and then it turned into a sexual thing because of the husband bulge. (laughs) It's a great term. I love it. It's funny. You know, I thought they might be doing one of the other conventions of these kinds of horror movies. When we see the kids down in the basement 
fiddling with what attracts them, what they may summon unto themselves. Dana is really drawn in by this photo of Patience. It's the youngest Buckner. I thought that it almost looked like her. Was that intentional? I mean, that's such a horror movie cliche of, I see a painting of someone that I know, but it's 200 years ago, and what does that mean? I thought maybe they were going to play with the idea that she was a Buckner at some point. I never got that, because she was downplayed as the quiet one, supposed to be the kind of the reserved one. I thought maybe she just was, like, opening her heart and felt really bad for this girl. I never thought that it looked like her. Oh, yeah. That could be that. They are drawn to what they're attracted to, which is interesting because the slut is drawn to the wedding dress, and the nerdy guy is drawn to the ballerina box. I don't know what's going on with him, but he really wasn't into Dana, so maybe there was something homosexual going on there. But for whatever reason, Dana is the one that prevails, I think it's because she reads the diary out loud, and out come the Buckners. When watching this again for the first time in theaters, not knowing if this was a straight horror movie, I was lukewarm on the Buckners. I liked the diary story, but zombies with hacksaws and bear traps, it just didn't excite me in a new way or in an ironic way. Now, of course, where they go with it is great. But at that moment, when I thought it was horror, I was like, oh, zombie redneck incest. Okay. (laughs) It's kind of like being taken to an ice cream factory where they have 50 different flavors and then you order vanilla. It's like, oh, we all know what this is. I saw that whiteboard. We could have had a unicorn. We could have had a merman. We could have had something that has not been done too often. And oh, we just get a Texas Chainsaw Massacre redo. What would have been a fantastic special feature on this DVD would have a little area where you could see what they would have had to pick up to get the different... Oh, I could tell exactly what it was, though. I mean, if he blew in the conch shell, it was the merman. Yeah, but I mean, there were so many of them, though. The ballerina was the evil, what they call in the commentary, ballerina dentata. Yes. Yeah. But I would have liked to see more of it. Like, what would they have had to pick up in the basement to get the angry molesting tree? No, I think what I would say is I would have more fun rummaging around that basement than seeing what plays out for the next half hour. I think that the possibilities are more interesting and exciting than the actuality of okay, here comes the zombie redneck family. And this is a problem of the conceit of this satire here, is that if you've set it up that this is all a game and a joke, and that the genre is silly, then when we actually have to do the genre conventions, eh, it's not really that exciting. I mean, they do it as best they can. I think the zombie family looks good. The makeup looks good. Certainly the Matthew big guy, the sort of leather face one of them with the bear trap, is got some imposing qualities. But overall, as a setup for a horror, I don't feel like the next 20, 30 minutes really works in that way. I'm not really scared that the Buckners are coming, and I really don't care if the kids get out or not. The fun of the movie is only when we return down to the lab and see what Sitterson and Hadley are doing. I agree, but I don't. Again, going in the first time thinking it was going to be a straight horror, I was kind of with the Buckners, and I was really enjoying Marty unraveling everything as it goes and finding the camera and all of that. So I was going with it as straight horror. It isn't inventive. It's very rote, but it's passable. 
Yeah, it's passable, which is a drop. I think that it is a problem with the middle of this movie. It works in my argument that this could be cut down to a short in which we just have the characters down in the basement manipulating this, and we don't actually need to see these standard horror scenes where they fall into the black room, where they're pulled out of windows, where we have the sex scene, you know, and they're killed. Uh, To me, all of these moments, because they are conventional, because they're calling them out in big, bold letters, this is a cliché. Well, that doesn't make it better that you're calling it out as you do it. To me, this is where I feel like the movie fails as a horror movie. This stuff's not scary. You're right. They're not scary. And it was very rote as far as the villain goes in a horror movie. There's nothing original about it. I really expected some torture porn based on what she was reading in the diary because I talk about cutting open the stomach, mother was screaming. Yeah, filled with hot coals. What the hell's that? I know, exactly. <laughs> I was expecting some torture porn and I was thinking that, okay, great, Jules got knife through her hand when she's having sex. They're going to punish her for being a whore. Nope. Cut her head off. Whoop-dee-doo. I've seen that a million times in a horror form. And maybe I'm jaded because I've seen so many horror forms, but I wanted them to slice her stomach open and fill it with hot coals and something along that line. But then the focus was not that, was the whole point of the movie. I don't think Goddard and Whedon like torture porn. I'm not sure that they really like slasher movies. To me, this movie reads as a hate letter to the horror genre. You guys say it's loving. I feel like this movie really is calling this out as stupid. And uh, you're right. They don't want to revel in the things that they're calling out. They don't want to have extreme violence. Either they tried to make suspenseful scenes that didn't work, or they just said, we're not trying to do suspense because we're calling out it as dumb. But this section of the movie, as the kids are being killed, not interesting. What's interesting is as they die, we see their molds filling with blood. We see the guys downstairs kissing rosaries, and we're hearing more talk about the ancient ones. This is where my attention lies. I do not care about the rote quality of the kills. I don't think the filmmakers do either. Maybe that's not their focus here. I can say they do love horror. They grew up on it the same way we did. So they're not making a hate letter, but they may be making a comment of it's been done. It's all been done. And how can you do it any further? But that doesn't take away, I don't think, their enjoyment of the old stuff. Maybe, Stuart, they did hate Friday the 13th's reboot as much as we did. Maybe they don't (laughs) hate horror, but they hate that movie like we do. Go back to listen our very first retrospective series at Now Playing to find my bitter, crushing disappointment. (laughs) Maybe they were... I, I saw that movie in Manhattan. Maybe Drew and Joss were in that same theater in Manhattan having the same soul-crushing agony of Michael Bay's desecration of Jason as I did and this was their response. But they couldn't have possibly known about this because they were filming this movie when that was released. This has been sitting on the shelf a long time. Cabin in the Woods is a parody of horror movies, but it's not a parody of the Friday the 13th reboot, despite their many, many, many similarities. I think that's more a testament to how uncreative Nespo was with rebooting that franchise and less to do with them attacking recent horror genres. I feel like they just feel like horror is in a bad place. They started it in the most stereotypical place they could and yeah just started to dish on it but cabin in the woods was made in 2009 and for reasons i'm not entirely clear on only received theatrical release three years later well that surprised me because i told you i saw this when i was in avengers hype because it had chris hemsworth in it i kind of thought this was similar to the gift where joss whedon had gone and made the avengers and was stuck in hollywood 
big budget hell, and he went off and made a little horror film that, because it was so small, was actually able to be filmed after Avengers, but released before Avengers. I had no idea that this had sat around for so long. What happened was, the studio that made it ran out of money. MGM, yes. Same reason why it took so long for a Bond movie. And so, it actually sat around. They were trying to cut costs down to the very end, and finally, Lionsgate had to come along and buy the film and distribute it. But it was purely financial, not creative. But... Mm. I thought Chris Hemsworth being here was like Joss had worked with him on Avengers and was like, hey, Chris, I like you. I'm making a horror film. Come be in it. I didn't realize this movie was made. He was cast in Red Dawn while this was being made. Another movie made back then that hasn't been released yet. (laughs) Couple weeks you can see that one. Yes. And he got the role of Thor while on the set here. So it's completely the other way around, and I had no way to know that until the bonus feature. Well, perhaps we're giving Whedon too much credit here. We keep dropping his name here, but it's probably important to emphasize he did not direct this movie. I don't know if he was on set or not, but he is not the credited director for this movie. The credited director is Drew Goddard, who did co-write the screenplay and who also co-wrote Cloverfield. That's who's getting their directorial debut here. We should probably give him a little more props and not just call this a Whedon project. Okay, but he does come from Buffy. Whedon keeps around him a small cabal of actors. Uh, There's several in here. Amy Acker, the intern guy was from Buffy. You see some of them in even Avengers. People he just works with again and again. Drew is one of them. And... While this is Drew's directorial debut, it was done under the watchful guidance of Whedon. Mm -hmm. Whedon co-wrote, Whedon produced, Whedon did direct the J-horror scenes. Mm. Whedon at one point told Goddard, you know, I think I'm going to direct this one myself, but then changed his mind. And this was done as a reaction, I think, to Wonder Woman going south, is they'd spent so much time not making a movie that they decided they just wanted to go make something really quick, hack the script out in like a weekend, and went and made it. Well, it's impressive. I mean, they know what they're attacking here, and they're making interesting points. I would say only this much to their attacks. If you feel like the only thing that's different about slasher movies are the monsters that are attacking the kids, then you're undervaluing what it is to be a good director and to make horrific moments. Scream did this better. Scream was made 16 years ago, has the same self-reflexive, it's only a horror movie kind of joke running in it, but it still works as a horror movie in a way that this movie does not. But you just said earlier this movie was not a horror movie. But it should be. I guess my point is I'm liking what I'm getting, and I want to stress that. I think the jokes are funny. I would like this more if I were getting what I thought I was getting, which is a horomedy. I wanted the horror, too. And the fact of the matter is, it's failing me as a horror movie, whereas Scream, that opening with Drew Barrymore, works. That stuff is dynamite. I'm on the edge of my seat. Here, there's no scene in this movie where I'm on the edge of my seat. I will say the first time watching it, when I didn't know what was going on, the one scene I really liked is when Holden and Dana are driving back after Kurt just jumped into the wall on his bike, 
and all of a sudden, a Buckner comes from the back of the RV, stabs Holden through the throat, and the van goes into the water. That scene is perhaps one of the few scenes that really worked to shock me, scare me, and get me on the edge of my seat. The earlier scene with the Buckners killing Jules, that scene kind of worked as a horror, but you're right. Nothing is working as well as the Drew Barrymore scene, which was groundbreaking and really, truly frightening. Here, at best, it's rote horror. You know, I think they really spoiled something in some of this game playing that they're having here by having that eagle get fried by the electric invisible force field it really spoils a really good joke they have later when kurt is trying to get away by grabbing that motocross bike they've had conspicuously on the back of the rv we know he's not going to make it because we saw what happened to that bird it would be much more incredible if he jumped it wow he made it and then bam i think that would be a better reveal I completely agree with you. The filmmakers thought we would have forgotten about the bird, but who's going to forget about that bird? Nobody's going to no. forget about the bird. It was in the trailer. I mean, it was the hook. It was the one thing that lets you know how big the manipulations are in this game here. But a funny death all the same. I did enjoy watching him fall all the way down, but how much better would it have been if you didn't anticipate it was going to go that way? But... I do think there is horror here. It's just not played for scares. I mean, this movie ends with the death of everyone, and it's a pretty stark ending. There's a lot of monsters, a lot of carnage. There is definitely the horror in the horomedy, but I just guess what you're saying is you would prefer a little more tonic, a little less gin. But you've got gin and tonic in here. But I also don't think that they were striving to be original horror and to be really scary. Because the horror isn't what this movie is about. But that's a mistake, is what I'm calling out. I think if you market something as a slasher movie, we have a right to expect jumps, scares, suspense. I don't care about original. I don't care that they are recycling old things and commenting on what's been done rather than paving a new past. That's fine. What I mind, what irks me, is amid all this smugness about how smart they are to figure out genre conventions, they can't actually do what the best people that have worked in the genre have done, which is actually get us in the gut make us scared. And that's a failing. If you're going to make fun of something, you have the onus of also doing it better. And they don't. But are they saying, in turn, that the generic horror movie is not original? Because if you think about just your low-budget, throw-out-a-horror movie, they're all the same. And I think this movie is saying these movies are all interchangeable, the slasher fix. There's nothing original about them, and I don't think that they were trying to be original, and I don't think they were trying to draw you in with the horror. I think that they were trying to draw you in with this, what we saw as a second story of the guys controlling everything, and their intern and their new guy, but that was really the story, and the horror was such a small part of it, which... I don't think they were trying to be original, and I don't think they were trying to make you go, holy crap, that was awesome. So what you're saying is half the movie isn't meant to work. We aren't supposed to care about the horror thing because the point is downstairs, and I agree with you. It's is only half a movie. The fact that we spend so much time with these kids trying to get away is irrelevant because nobody really cares. It's not scary, and it's all for naught. And no, because the end of the movie where... The entire plot of the puppeteers is unraveled wouldn't work if we didn't spend that time with those kids. And in that way, it's just like a horror film because when they get downstairs in that elevator, I want them to live. I am rooting for them. Now, the slasher is very 
uncommon because it's Bradley Whitford. He's the mastermind here, but I am with these kids and I want to see these kids survive just like the way I want to see Alice and her brother survive A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. I am with these kids and if we hadn't spent that time with them and if we hadn't seen them gone through the shit they go through when Marty gets stabbed in the back and when Dana's getting beat to crap by the Buckners while REO Speedwagon plays on. That was an awesome scene. I thought that was fantastic. They're popping their champagne. Tequila is my lady! Roll with the changes. Indeed, that is what their job is. That even though they got this whole program down, things happen. The unexpected comes up. They have to be improvisers. They have to work on the fly. And we've commented already, but it's all the pressure has fallen down to America. Everybody else has failed at this point. We know that this ritual has to occur. We may not quite know why, but it has something to do with angry things below the surface that are going to emerge. We recognize that as the biggest bad. We know that must be stopped. We're rooting for these guys. You say you're with the kids. No, we are not. We are wanting these guys to get this job done because we do not want what's in the basement to get out. Here's my point of view on it is I want these kids to survive. Now, if humanity dies, obviously they don't live. If they die for the sake of humanity, they don't live. Because I've seen enough Buffy where the end of the world is eminent and then oops, at the 11th hour, they find a way to circumvent the end of the world. That's kind of where I thought this was going. I thought the kids could live and the world would be saved. And that's why I'm rooting for them. I'm not rooting for the office workers. Also, what I think makes this movie better on a second viewing is you're acting like we know during these scenes that Marty has to die so that we, the rest of the world, can live. That is not revealed until Sigourney Weaver shows up in the last scene. It's the very last scene. It's hinted at, it's implied... When Stitterson dies and he begs Dana to kill Marty and you see Dana start realizing something else is going on, that is the twist ending. For the world to live, Marty must die. And if we knew that in these earlier scenes, we would be rooting for Hadley and Stitterson. But since we don't know until Sigourney Weaver shows up, you can't root for them. Only on a second viewing do you root for them. I disagree. I knew when they cut away to the REO Speedwagon, when they say the virgin is optional. We understand that these kids have to die to stop the ritual. The fact that it doesn't have to be the last girl she could get away, because sometimes that happens in horror movies, that is irrelevant. We knew that Marty had to die in order for this to be complete. We saw his mold get filled with blood. I guess that's not real blood, huh? That's not when they die, their blood fills up. That's a metaphorical blood that they just have on tap that they turn on to let the gods know that there has been a death. It could be real blood, but it's not their blood. They probably buy blood in bulk. I mean, come (laughs) on, these people, the way that they run it here, it's a factory. But I still wasn't sure what their goal was. And I didn't realize that Marty living meant the end of the world. If we knew those stakes, then I would agree with you. I pretty much had that told to me. I mean, I felt like that was evident. I mean, I didn't know whether there could be a compromise, but I knew that if he didn't die, the ritual wouldn't be complete, and that he becomes this sort of monkey in the works. I suppose because he's funny, we want him to live. We spent some time with him. These are the two that are left that we would like to see get away and stick it to the people for putting them in this bad circumstance. After all, they are smart kids that otherwise would not have been in this 
circumstance. It was created for them. So to see Marty emerge from the grave, literally and figuratively, and to have stopped the collapse of the tunnel. It's him messing around with the electricity that is the reason why they almost get away in the RV. When that tunnel is collapsing, those demolition people didn't get the order to do that because Marty had cut the communication line. I think the fun of it is watching the House of Cards come down on the office workers once Marty has really put it all together. Is that what happened? Marty did it? Because they say a power reroute from upstairs Stop the cave from blowing. I honestly wondered if somebody like Sigourney Weaver, the director, somebody was trying to sabotage this and trying to get the world to be destroyed. They don't really explain that person from upstairs rerouting the power. It's Marty. No, it absolutely is Marty. He's the fly in the soup. He is the one that is mucking it up at this point. He had already died. If you look at the construction of the story, he had already, quote unquote, died, had been dragged into that grave. And from that point, we can presume he had quickly found the elevator and moved on. I have to say, I do love the fact that he killed the zombie with a trowel. It's a good Night of the Living Dead joke. Yeah, I think that could have been made more clear, honestly. I think it would have been better if they'd made it more clear that it was Marty who did Mm -hmm. that. Because when they talk about the people upstairs, they talk about the director. The call came from upstairs, you know. So when they say someone upstairs did a power reroute, that does not imply Marty to me. And so that would be the only ding I can give this film is that isn't well explored. Well, I also was thinking of the director upstairs and not of Marty, he did have the power thing open when they went to the elevator. So that kind of makes sense. However, they weren't really close to that rock cave. So I'm kind of confused as to how that all happened. Don't they have any redundancy built in their network? (laughs) Yeah. Why wouldn't cell phones work in that circumstance? I don't know. But I do feel like it's the kids bringing it all down. That's the fun in here. Yes. They get the elevator going. We get a cage by cage view of all those creatures that we were hoping might have come for them or the ones we would have chosen for our own doom or here. The pinhead joke. I mean, this stuff is all kind of fun. And then, of course, they really go for it when they unleash them, the movie has become a different sort of joy. I thought the pinhead guy looked very kind and pleading. He had painful eyes. Not that he was going to hurt you. He just wanted a friend. Yeah. Well, he just wants to tear your soul apart. He doesn't want to kill you. Yeah, he was no Doug Bradley. The stuntman they found to put the buzz saws in his head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My big question about this scene, which I thought it was great that you could see all these different things, but why did it move like a Rubik's Cube? I don't understand why they just kept moving. And Arnie told me, he said, oh, it's because you're picking things. And I'm like, but they've already picked them. So do the monsters not like to be next to each other and they have to constantly rotate them? Why does it keep moving like that? It's a convention that you have to accept that this stoner was smart enough to hardwire into their system and manipulate it that way. I mean, does it make sense? No, it does not. But the Rubik Cube effect is nice, and it, it sends home the message that, yes, with just a simple twist, it really comes down to one twist, it would have been a different creature entirely attacking them rather than the Buckners. What's fun for me is when chaos reigns and we see the giant snake and the unicorn and the merman finally comes for his biggest fan, all of that stuff is fun. But Patience, she's aptly named because she's just creeping on through amid all of this carnage. We have that little girl with the missing arm who's just still trying to get the people that she was brought up to get. I thought that was a really nice touch of that she would be the one to finally come for them when we head towards the end here. I'd forgotten all about her. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Exactly, which is part of the fun of it, yes. Why would you think about a little girl with one missing arm when you have so much else to look at? But yes, she becomes important when we get to the final moments of the film. And yeah, as you say, the director comes out to explain what's all going on. And I got to say, when I saw this in theaters, audible gasp, I had recognized it from the voiceover. She talks to them first over intercom, and I'm like, I know that voice. And after listening to it for a minute or two, I'm like, I definitely know who that is, but I didn't think Sigourney Weaver. She wasn't in the credits. I didn't think she was actually going to do an on-screen cameo, and it was great to see her. I kind of recognized her from the voice, and I'm like, is that Sigourney Weaver? I couldn't think this movie would get Sigourney Weaver, quite honestly. But, surprisingly enough, they did. And, of course, it wasn't until I got the commentary that it made the link impressively clear, Joss knew her from Alien Resurrection. Mm-hmm. And on the commentary, he goes, she did well in Alien Resurrection. How many people can you say that about? (laughs) He wouldn't say it about many. I think we were a little more complimentary. I had heard the buzz that there's this great cameo at the end of the movie, and it's a horror legend, and I could not play Sigourney Weaver's voice. But I was kind of disappointed it was her. I was hoping for a horror movie legend. And I guess because I don't consider Alien a horror movie, it's kind of like horror sci-fi. It crosses that line, kind of like this crosses a line of horror comedy. I was expecting, like, Queen of Slasher Fix, Jamie Lee Curtis. Something like that. Okay. I kind of gone with Jamie Lee. I, I don't think that's a bad choice. I'm trying to think of who else might be able to fill that role. Vincent Price is no longer with us. Who is the horror movie guy? I mean, Robert England. I don't want to milk that anymore. No. I've seen 2001 Maniacs. The guy can't act. We want somebody who can give a performance. Jamie yeah. Lee does have street cred yeah. in addition to horror cred. I don't think there's that many others other than Jamie Lee. You mentioned Scream earlier, Stuart. You could have gone to some of the people from the Scream cast. Drew Barrymore, I don't think she's old enough. I like that Sigourney Weaver is older. She feels like a corporate CEO. You'd believe she'd be in charge. I don't know that Drew, I'd trust her to run any kind of company, much less one that keeps the lives of the entire population at stake. She draw flowers on them all. <laughs> and yet she has a very successful production company. But I'm trying to think, if you want an older person, you've got to go to older horror. And if you go to things like Linda Blair, you're not going to get a good performance. So mm-hmm. if Jamie Lee or Sigourney both work for me. And while Jamie Lee might have been a better in-joke, I like Sigourney here because, damn, is she tough when she starts kicking the shit out of Marty. She's a tough bitch. No one can ever say that Sigourney Weaver is a girly girl. That bitch can kick ass. Yeah, it's great. I didn't anticipate that she would be taken out by patience, but I like the way that this all plays out here. And it's kind of got a little bit of a Ghostbusters tie, because here she's kind of appeasing Zool in a way. Yeah, a little bit. You know, she does have more than just Alien under her belt. She does have that Ghostbusters horror cred as well. So whose side were you on then? Because I was on the side of the kids. I thought the world wouldn't end, but I also thought that Marty and Dana would live. I didn't want Dana to kill Marty. I didn't care. We've moved so much into a postmodern, ironic deconstruction. I didn't care about any of the characters. It was just fun to watch them destroy each other. I don't care that the world ends here. I don't feel like this is the universe I live in. I don't feel like the ancient ones are going to get me. I just, I know that that's what they're saying here, but the fact that Dana almost shoots Marty was taken out by a werewolf, none of it matters because none of them are really characters we have empathy for beyond sort of generics. 
See, I thought they were fucking with me because I'm rooting for Dana. Dana's the last girl with that last girl thing. But Dana's going to kill Marty. And then Dana gets bitten by a werewolf. I thought that they were pulling the ultimate mindfuck and Dana would die and Marty would live. And that somehow that would work because when she goes to shoot him, I start to turn on her. I wonder if they toyed with actually making that the ending. That would actually make more sense. And I'm not sure that Marty couldn't play the role of the virgin as well. True. They even bring up that he almost slept with the blonde, but didn't. Yeah. I just thought it was kind of a neat way to tie it up so they couldn't make any sequels. I was kind of hoping she would kill him just to see if it averted it or maybe it was a trick. I liked the kind of few twists that they did have at the end, but I just thought the ending lacked oomph after they got it all done and they just sat there. I kind of liked them sitting down, sharing a joint, knowing they're going to die. I mean, I enjoyed their friendship there. I think that worked. That said, I could see 50 different endings that would also work, including Dana kills Marty, and Dana then is, like, in line to become the next director, Mm -hmm. and she goes that way. There's so many things that would work. I think it's a testament to how well-written these characters are that I could see all these endings and see them all as possibilities and would have been accepting of all. To me, it's just another punchline. This ending isn't an ending. It's just calling out literally what they're doing. Dus ex machina, the hand of God. Yes, That's what this is about. It's about postmodern manipulating of the horror genre. They're literally bringing out the hand of God to bring it all down here. They don't have an ending because this is a skit. This isn't a movie. I don't care about the characters. This is a skit. Well, let's see how much you do care. Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend The Cabin in the Woods? Marjorie. I recommend it. It's fun. I really like Bradley Whitford. I think he gets typecast a lot in a snively kind of jackass role. And this was good to see him be comedic because he is funny. They had a good interaction going. They basically said that all slasher flicks are the same with the same characters because they are. We know that. We like that. It's okay. It's a fun movie and definitely a two-watcher. You got to watch it twice. Because the first time you watch it, take it all in. Second time, you start looking for all the clues that you missed. Because there are a few. I do recommend this movie. Stuart. Well, there's no doubt about it. This movie is very clever and fun. It works well as a joke if you like horror movies. I think it works better if you hate horror movies. I feel like this movie is a satire of what the horror genre has become. A hate letter to torture porn and a real feeling of there's nothing left to do for at least the filmmakers here within the genre. But I bristle at the implication that all slasher movies are the same. You can't tell me that Halloween and Friday the 13th are the same movie. It's all about the way that you put it together. And by being smarmy, reducing this all to a genre that is junk that is interchangeable, that is a Rubik's Cube, I feel like on some hand they are discrediting what it is to be a good filmmaker. And that I would be more impressed with this movie if it were a good horror movie that got real rises out of me rather than just been a sort of juvenile nudge in the ribs. But I do think it works. I do think that, as Marjorie, you pointed out, the best stuff is Hadley Sitterson. These are the characters that kept me involved. I enjoyed every single scene that they're in. I was sad once they depart from the movie because I don't care anymore. They're the last things I care about. Don't care about the kids. Love Sigourney Weaver, but it's a punchline. It's not a part. This movie really works as a skit. It's overlong, but I liked it. I understand why some people are going to love it. But to me, it's too clever by half, but 
half clever is still a recommend. I disagree with most of what you said, Stuart, except for the recommend. I do agree that I don't think horror films should be reduced to being all the same because we have spent many moons analyzing the differences in them. And this Christmas, when we start getting into some of the real subculture slasher stuff like Silent Night, Deadly Night, we're going to spend a lot more time analyzing it. And we wouldn't spend this time if we didn't see something there worth discussing. But that said, I don't think this movie would work for non-horror fans or for horror haters because they wouldn't get the jokes. I think that they would just be left on the sidelines not understanding why their horror geek friend next to them is getting so jolly. This movie is a strong recommend for me because I like all the characters. I like the characters in the underground complex. I like the characters in the cabin, even when they're manipulated into being stereotypes. I like the monsters. I like the ballerina, and I like the clown. And I think that these guys are good filmmakers because they're able to ape all these different horror genres so well. I don't remember any movies about evil unicorns. That was the one where I felt they were going a little bit too Dr. Horrible Bad Horse. It was too self-referential for my taste. But this movie does so much right. It has such strong performances from actors who, by and large, I've never seen before and probably will never see again. Oh, come on. There'll be a wacky role for Marty somewhere along the line. In a Joss Whedon production, yes. 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 He's actually in Joss Whedon's uh, Shakespeare. You'll love that, Arnie. Much Ado About Nothing, coming soon. I will be seeing that in theaters, as I love Much Ado About Nothing. I am not a Whedonite, but I... (laughs) Lies! (laughs) But I think this movie does work on multiple levels. If it was scarier, I don't know that the humor would work as well. I think we all agree, though, A, we all agree it's a recommended, B, it's all a hell of a lot better than the Friday the 13th remake. Well, shit. (laughs) (laughs) When the bar is that low, you can't help but step over it. But yes, it is a fun parody of that kind of bad filmmaking. I just don't think that's a great example of how a good slasher could be. And I get you're saying that, but to me, it's not necessarily even slasher is more monster. It's more zombie. And having seen a lot of the bad ones, this is one of the good ones. I recommend it. And I'm very happy to say my fear was how would it be on the second viewing when I'm not on the edge of my seat trying to open the puzzle box? And knowing it makes it all that much more sweet. This is a movie that will enter my annual Halloween viewing rotation and possibly even in between when it hits cable. This is a good, good movie. Recommend. Well, I guess that means it's also entering my Halloween rotation. (laughs) It could be worse. That's true. But also part of my every year Halloween rotation is the remake of Dawn of the Dead, which we're going to be reviewing in a couple of weeks over in our donation series for Night of the Living Dead. And yes... This is our third podcast coming out this week. We're doing three this week. For most of 2012, we've been doing two movies a week. Every so often, just one. But we've really almost doubled our output. And this is a show that has no sponsors. We have no advertisers. We don't have studios paying us to like movies. Not saying I'd be above that, but we don't have it. (laughs) (laughs) All of a sudden, we're suddenly loving every new horror movie coming out. Right the 13th remake? Well, what did I say about that before? It's great! Ching. <laughs> <laughs> 
But we are able to do all we do thanks to listener support. So if you enjoy our show, what we do every week for free, or if you want to hear us talk more horror, or both, head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top, and please donate to hear Jacob Stewart and I deconstruct six or nine Living Dead films. And you can also donate to hear all of our previous ones. It's the first and possibly only time we will ever open the vaults in this way. You can get every previous donation series we've ever done. We've heard you for years. People emailing. Some people emailing every month. Can I get Child's Play yet? Can I get Child's Play yet? Can I get Child's Play yet? Child's Play Jaws, Alien, Poltergeist. People have been asking for us to re-release these. We have finally done it. You can find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com. Click the Living Dead banner at the top, and there's a frequently asked questions on that page that will answer all your questions. And if you enjoyed this podcast review, head to our forums. There's a link from nowplayingpodcast.com. Tell us what you thought about Cabin in the Woods. Despite three recommends, there were some differing opinions here. Let us know. Did you want the world to end? Did you want Dana to kill Marty? Come to the forums. Tell us at nowplayingpodcast.com. So Marjorie Stewart, thank you for joining me and thanks to the listeners for voting for Cabin in the Woods. Marjorie, you'll be back with us for a silent and deadly night later this year. Yes, I will. Five of them, actually. Maybe six. Yeah. I'm not sure how many of those movies are going to make my nice list. I think they're all pretty naughty. Yeah, they are. But I look forward to it. And remember, listeners, if you don't transgress, you can't be punished. celebrating but she's still alive how can the ritual be complete the virgin's death is optional as long as it's last main thing is that she you know suffers that she did thank you for listening to this episode of now playing well good luck with your business sir i know the railroads coming through here any day now that's gonna be big streets paved with actual street fucker if you enjoy this podcast, you can hear more movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can hear reviews of The Halloween Movies, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Terminator, Star Trek, and hundreds more. They're like something from a nightmare. No, they're something nightmares are from. Monsters? Magic? Gods? You get used to it. Should you? While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. No, no, no. There's no need to huff and puff. I'll let you come in. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Everything's filed or recorded or blogged. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Don't hold back. Never do. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I don't think it knows about money. I think it's barter gas. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You understand what's at stake here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Gotta keep the customer satisfied. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. But cutting the flesh makes him have a husband's bulge, and I do not get like that. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Think I'm a puppet, gonna do a little... A fucking puppet dance! 
Now playing is not affiliated with Lionsgate or Mutant Enemy Productions. Cabin in the Woods is the property of Mutant Enemy Productions and no infringement is intended. Things should have gone differently. Ended more quickly. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. This thing would have been cooler with a merman. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I am never going to see a merman, ever. Two would be thankful. Those things are terrifying. Oh, come on. I think that there's no good movie with rollerblading in it. Uh, you might be right. Yeah. That is, uh, that's really hard to do and without you looking like an asshole. It's it, just one of those things like you look like an asshole. Yeah. Prayer of the Roller Boys. Oh, yeah. And Prayer oh, of the Roller Boys was terrible. Airborne, I enjoy it, but I could see that it would be considered Why are you bad. the only person who's seen the whole genre of rollerblade movies? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else is there. It's a problematic thing. One film. Only seven movies total have been ha- have been tagged with rollerblading. They're Roller Boys, Airborne, uh, Brink, ru- and oh, couple TV shows, and then Hackers. Okay, I think Hackers is what put an end to it. <laughs> was there a beginning? I don't think so. Yeah, well, uh, the beginning was someone at Hollywood said, "Hey, I was out there rollerblading. We should make a movie." <laughs> I, I hit the Wikipedia page for Prayer of the Roller Boys, and this right here, we got to get started, but I, I got to read you the plot summary. Just at least the first sentence. Sure. A rollerblade wearing white supremacist youth gang known as the Roller Boys <laughs> fight for spiritual and economic control of what's left of the city. Yes, exactly. <laughs> rollerblading white supremacist. You already had me. That's it. I'm, I'm down. Oh, come on. <laughs> Because there's so many goddamn James Bond movies, they're never-ending, folks. By the time you guys finish, there's going to be, like, three more coming out. <laughs> Actually, uh, they already have signed for two more. It's not over, even in November. Are you kidding? Nope. Oh, oh come on. For, sil- for silver level... It's hard to say. For silver... <laughs> silver? Silver. Oh, come on. It's not like the crying game, which was this huge contest among reviewers to not reveal. <laughs> the reviews are more entertaining than the movie itself, and exactly. the way they try to dance around that, particularly yeah. when when the uh, supporting player got best actor nomination. <laughs> True, forgot all about that best actor part. And they weren't sure whether it was actor or actress. And sorry for anybody who has not seen the crying game. Yeah, I'm actually not sorry because you're better than I have because you have that two hours of your life back. <laughs> It wasn't that bad. Not recommend the crying game. Oh, come on. Um, do we want to talk at all about the history of the movie now, or do we want to just get into plot? Um, we could do a uh, plot summary, or we could do talking about it. Either way, um, I think I mean, we should talk about it. I mean, is there much to say other than the fact that it, it sat on a shelf? I'm sure that might come up later anyway. It will but- come up because of Thor, so why don't we save that? Okay, perfect. So someone set him up for a plot. Why why don't you just tell me to go ahead and spoil everything? (laughs) Okay. Why don't I do that? This is just like the movie. (laughs) A little subliminal voice whispering in my ear. Just tell him to say the plot. (laughs) Puppet master. (laughs) Pop-Tarts. Oh, come on. A group of... Oh, my God, I can't speak this morning. (laughs) 
<clears throat> oh, come on. Let me get one to pick up. Tim Dizarn. I misread R-N as N. Okay. Oh, yeah, because you said Tim Dizam. <laughs> I thought it was a cool name. Zam. Dizam. That's how I'm going to call him if I ever mention his name again. You won't. I know. But. <laughs> I won't. I'll see him five more times in horror movies and not recognize him, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> not Randy. You guys talk, scream so much, I almost call him Randy. Oh, come on. <laughs> Uh, hold on, let me just say it. Bradley Whitfield. Furry. It's which oh. word? Badly, Bradley, Bradley, ba- Bradley Whitford. <laughs> Bradley wow. Whitford. Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford. 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 Okay. Now say it lovingly. Bradley Whitford. There you go. That's the one. <laughs> you see, if, if I was going to edit, I'd stick that in every time he would say Bradley Whitford. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on. Over on our donation, please. Sorry, I was shutting it. <laughs> he gets real mad when you make noises. Don't even breathe, Marjorie. I know. <laughs> don't even breathe. I Every noise she makes is five minutes of my life that I don't have to spend with you. <laughs> Do you think I did that on purpose? Oh, look at how he turned it around. I, I'm. You're denying yourself the privilege of me. <laughs> Are you usually the brunt of this, Stuart? Oh, I get this all the time. Oh, good. I thought it was just me. No, all the time. My God. That's because you don't sit still. I scratch an ear. He's like, what did you do? It sounded like nine people being dragged over razors. (laughs) Oh, my God. I really thought it was just me all along. I'm so glad it's happening to you, too. have to be like this motionless automaton just waiting and like barely opening my mouth. Are you happy? In my defense, Brock agreed with me about the nine people being dragged over racers. Yes, the editors always agree with you because they have to do what you do. I talked to a professional voice actor, and he said that it's the performer's job to make the editor's life easier. Okay, well, you should hire him to do the damn show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get some breakfast. I'm hungry. (laughs) All right. Oh, come on. Ah!